Good morning, good morning. Glad you are uh, here. I'm going to see if I can change this up here. I think it's going to work if I drop it better through the back. It's good to be here. I've been uh, gone. Um, and I, I mean, I've been around, I just haven't been here, and, um, I've missed you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I never really get a chance to talk, but, uh, with some of you afterwards or whatever, but, um, I trust that the announcement last week was good. Yeah, and, uh, having Rick here, I just feel really good about it. Um, and as you get to know him, you'll, if you don't know him yet, uh, you'll understand why. We feel great about him being here and um, on our staff, just as a whole, just to have Rick around is just really, really good. So um, <clears throat> today we are in Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn there, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app or whatever, this thing is crazy today. We're acting up. Um, let me see here. It's just going to maybe fall off. Rick, we need to get a new mic. Yeah, we definitely need to get a new mic. It's all right. Here we go. Luke 15. We're going to come to this place where... I'm just going to hold it like this. This is awesome. Um, we come to this place where Jesus is faced with a tension. And he's going he's gonna to address the tension um, with stories. He's just going to tell three stories. And um, here we go. Let's mute that one. I'm just going to mess with that all morning long and drive all of you nuts unless we do this. This will work in the Mess up KLCD. Sorry, Kale. Um, if you have to wrap that back up, apologize. Um, this will just be way easier. I'm tempted to throw it. I just, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to. We might be able to fix it. It's just a weird band thing. Um, we're in Luke 15. And Jesus is faced with this tension that um, I think we can all identify with somewhat internally. Um, but the way he addresses the, the tension is actually just by telling three stories, which is a fascinating thing. Stories, um, they're always intriguing at some level. Obviously, we like some stories better than others. Uh, we love the stories that we can identify with the most. But stories, even the simplest of them, always have kind of a point to them. So take like a simple um, childhood story, like the three little pigs. Ever heard that story? You take the three little pigs and you have the first two pigs are eaten by the big bad wolf. Why? They built their house out of straw. Then you have a third pig who took the time to build his house out of bricks. And the big bad wolf could hut could huff and puff and couldn't blow his house down, right? Simple story. You tell it to children, but it has a point to it, right? 
there's a number of points you can draw from it. One might just be, hey, do it right the first time, <laughs> or whatever the lesson might be for a child at the time, other than being eaten by a wolf, right? Because um, they tend to see themselves as the pigs. <laughs> They're like, oh, I don't want to get eaten, you know? Um, or take like an iconic story, um, like one about the Greeks and the Trojan horse. You ever heard that story? The Ode- You read about it first in the Odyssey, but... The story is about how the Greeks had a fruitless 10 years of siege as they try to take the city of Troy. And the city of Troy and its people and its military and soldiers held off the Greeks for 10 years. They could not penetrate the city of Troy. And it finally comes to where the Greeks build this massive horse, huge, huge, huge wooden horse, put fruit on it, and and then sail away out into the horizon. It's a sign of submission. So the people of Troy go out, receive the horse, bring it into the city, and are celebrating their vict- final victory of a withholding all of the Greeks. They party, they celebrate into the night, all of that. Well, as the party and the celebration tends to wind down and the city quiets, what they didn't realize is that the Greeks had hidden their own soldiers in the horse. And they couldn't penetrate the city for 10 years. However, that night, the Greek soldiers came out. And as the the night darkened, the ships had come back. Those Greek soldiers, soldiers opened the doors to the city of Troy. And the Greeks came in and overtook the city. Now, there's this old kind of phrase that never trust a Greek with fruit. And it's this kind of concept. But the idea, you could draw all kinds of lessons from that awesome story of the Trojan horse, and you can think about it in a number of different ways, but they're always intriguing. They always have a lesson in them. Now, Jesus comes to this tension, and he tells three simple stories, and the stories, like any story, have a point, and they all kind of draw us in on different levels. We can identify with each story at different levels, but they all have a point. So, let's look at the tension first. Here's what we come to. Luke chapter 15 Verses 1 and 2. Here's here's what Luke tells us. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So these people that are outside of the social religious circle are coming to hear about what Jesus is teaching. To hear about that. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now here's the thing. This is the point of tension. Because... Jesus from the religious community is being uh, condemned for spending time with people outside of the social religious circle. They're outsiders of the religious world. And and be, they're condemning him really for hospitality, extending relationship outside. Because to share a meal with somebody was to share yourself with them. And the religious world didn't get this. He's actually being condemned of that. Now, as extreme as that might seem, the truth is, is in our religious lives, that kind of creeps in over time, and we all struggle with the tension at times. For instance, when I first came to faith, my first year in college, as I look back, I don't know, 23, 24 years ago, whenever that was, I, uh, I, I come to faith, and the first thing, one of the first physical things I do is, is I gathered up all of my non-Christian CDs and I threw them away. And it was this 
is this mentality that although sometimes separation for certain times is good, I actually thought to be faithful, I had to separate from everything not Christian and outside of that social religious circle. That's actually what I was thinking. My heart, I think I wanted to just be faithful and follow God, but I had fallen into the same trap, maybe not as extreme as this at this point, but the same trap of thinking to be faithful, I had to separate myself. Now, it also happened relationally. I actually left and kind of abandoned all of my relationships with non-Christian friends. Now, some of that was healthy because I was getting sucked into ways of life that I was in and all of that. But as a way of life, it's off base. It's interesting that when I look back, over the years, I've actually repurchased some of those CDs. <laughs> you do that? It's like, actually, that was good music, man. And start to re- repurchase that. It, it, that's neither good nor bad. It's just the fact that I actually thought that a separatist mentality was necessary to be faithful follower of Jesus. And this aspect relationally is what Jesus is always pushing on. He's always pushing on that. He's always pushing the religious world outside of their social circles. His disciples bringing them outside of their common, comfortable social circles. It's an extension of hospitality. This was actually the way of life. And this is where it's probably worthy of distinguishing two terms that we see in Scripture. The first term is this word fellowship. Fellowship is this idea. I'll throw this on the screen. Fellowship is the concept that you have an edifying, a building up relationship with each other. So it's spoken in Scripture of a relationship between a Christian and a Christian. You see it in Acts 2 where the the church was committed to this relationship. They were being the body of Christ with the body of Christ and treating each other with love and concern and care, praying together, reading Scripture together, all those kinds of things. And it's a Christian-Christian to relationship. It's also important to note a different term, and the term is hospitality. Hospitality is extending relationship to the other, and although it doesn't uh, uh, exclude Christian-to-Christian relationship, the focus is out on outsiders. It's actually a necessary characteristic for elders. And the whole idea is, is that Jesus is this perfect imprint of God's selfless love. And God is extending relationship out to everybody that does not yet have a relationship with him. And Jesus is the perfect imprint of that extension. And so he's pushing his people towards hospitality. And yet from the religious world, this is the very thing he's being condemned for. Now, this separatist mentality, it's fascinating how we can easily fall into it. Uh, We long to live with people that believe what we believe, value what we value. We want our kids to be around people that value what we value. All of that's good and right. But if it crosses a line of a separatist mentality, this is where Jesus pushes us. And, And this is where it pushes against the fact that we can create our own circles of relationships, our own subculture, where we not only don't need people outside, we actually kind of don't want them. And this isn't just a Christian thing. This is a anything. 
have a bridge group that you play bridge with every Tuesday morning or cards or it's like we just don't want outsiders. It's a human thing. And Jesus is constantly pushing on this, and yet the religious world is condemning him for it. Hospitality. Now, when we look at this, the scripture says tax collectors and sinners. Now, they're notorious from the religious mindset of being those that are, they don't get what God's doing, they're outside of God's work, they're, 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 out, they're just bad people and not worthy of being around. And yet, when you read through the book of Luke up to this point, the tax collectors and sinners are the group responding to the teachings of Jesus. That's who is responding. In verse 2, it talks about the Pharisees and scribes. It's interesting to note that at this, up to this point in Luke, when the Pharisees and scribes are mentioned together, they are the opponents of Jesus. So the reality of hospitality is being brought to the surface here. Jesus knows that he's being condemned of this. He hears that. He knows the mentality of condemnation towards hospitality from the religious world. Why would you share yourself with them? It's this elitism, separatist deal. And although it might seem extreme to us at first, I think it can apply. But Jesus responds to this tension by telling three simple stories. Here's the first story. Verse 3. So he told them this parable story. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. Righteous should be kind of in quotes there. Who need no repentance. So you, you see a theme in these verses. One is joy by an outsider, somebody that's left outside of the current pack, being brought back in. It's joy. Now, second story. Here's, here's what he says. Or that woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see the theme of the stories? There's a point. There is joy to be found. There is celebration to enter into when somebody outside comes to be with whatever. It's interesting because in the story, God is the shepherd that's rejoicing as he throws a needy sheep over his shoulders and then asking for rejoicing with him. God is, the in the story, a metaphor, the woman that lost the coin and sees the coin as valuable enough to search for 
It's all the stories pointing to who God is as good and loving. It's fascinating that, and I, I talk about this often, but it's fascinating how we can actually know just enough about the Bible to feel really, really guilty, and yet we don't experience the joy of following Jesus because we haven't gone far enough with him. And one of the ways in which we rob ourselves of joy is we have a separatist mentality. And we lose sight of the joy that God has when people outside come to be with him. Hospitality. Now, he tells the third story. Here's the third story. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, that's kind of weird because in a Jewish community, all the property would have went to the older son. So a sense of entitlement is fascinating here. But the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. This shows an extension of time. So he obviously had a lot to squander because all a famine doesn't come overnight. So he's out for quite some time, is fairly wealthy, and blows it all on self-pleasure. So, verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. That's important. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So you can hit rock bottom, and then you can, like, fall through it. He is a Jewish man feeding pigs. Actually, he's not just feeding them. He wants to actually eat with them. So you can hit it, or you can fall through it. The dude has fallen through it. He is through rock bottom. Now, verse 17, but when he came to himself, I love that phrase, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, which is a sign of honor, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, the best one we got. Come and kill it. And let us eat and, what? Celebrate. For this my son was dead and it is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And so this son goes out, squanders everything. He's a long way off, out in God knows where. All of the village would have known what the younger son had done probably would have sided with the father with sorrow going, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he did that. If you can imagine the humanity of that, wanting the best interests of the father and mother in mind, how the village people would have probably grown in bitterness and anger towards the younger son. Do you see that? How could he do this? Yet, in the story that Jesus is telling, the father does something actually disgraceful in the story. 
In order to run, he would have had a cloak on. So in order to run, he would have had to do something disgraceful for a Jewish man, and that is lift up his cloak and expose his legs and run through those very people that would have probably sided with him in kind of bitterness towards the younger son, and he's hauling down to meet his son and greets him with a kiss, gives him a robe, a sign of honor, and welcomes the outsider back into his home. It's an amazing story. Yet, there's two prodigal sons. The prodigal son that's self-absorbed and self-focused, and the one that's self-righteous. Watch this, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Like, what, what's going on, man? Like, I hear all this stuff. What, what is going on? This wasn't happening when I was out in the field working. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, the best one we got, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So his father is with him as well. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. Not only, not only didn't give me a fattened calf, you didn't give me a baby goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Now, the way that story ends is fascinating. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Tony Dungy. He's an ex-football coach, announcer now, uh, but he's a Christian guy. And I actually had the privilege of speaking uh, right before him um, at this conference a few years back and we were back in the green room and he was doing an interview. Nobody wanted to interview me. Um, but he was, he was, uh, doing this interview and somebody asked him, uh, it was a small group of people, but, uh, and there was podcasting or something, but, um, they asked him, Hey, it's, I, I heard a kind of a rumor that you never yell at your players. And I'm wondering how your faith plays into it, why you have that approach, because a lot of football players, football coaches are just yelling all the time. This is Tony Dungy's response. He says, well, I tell my players, if I have to yell, that means you're not listening. And I was like, whoa. I think his players would hear that and kind of go, oh, that's sobering. I think it's kind of one of those moments here. The son comes self-righteously, and the dad just says, this was worthy of celebrating. Now, in each story, if we go back through them and read the last verse and how each one ends, it has to do with joy. Now, if you go back to verse 7, 15, 7, here's what it says. The first story, the sheep. Yeah, keep going. Go to 15.7. This is the, the story. Go, keep going. Did we not go through all the slides? Did I send them to you wrong? Okay, there. Just so I tell you, 
There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It makes total sense as to why Jesus has a way of life called hospitality. Because there's joy to be experienced. At the end of the the woman in the coin story, verse 10, here's what he says. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner repents. Verse 32, at the end of the prodigal sons, plural. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, these stories are clearly an invitation to join in the God's heart and re- extending relationship to people so that they could be with him. It's an invitation. The stories are simple. You get them, and they have a point. And now, so the question, if God is good and loving, the question should not be, why is Jesus constantly extending God's love and relationship to people? The question is, is why aren't the religious people who claim to be God's people doing the same? Like, why, why isn't their way of life hospi- hospitable and extending relationship? And I, I think there's a few reasons as we look at the story. First one is maybe it's like the younger prodigal son, where you're actually just seeking self-pleasure. And like the younger son, it, it may not be in partying and drugs and, you know, women or men or whatever it is, although that might be part of your story. It's actually just a self-focus on whatever it is you want in life, your career, what you want for your family. That's actually, it's called self-absorption. And when I'm self-absorbed and I'm trying to just do what pleases me and do what I want, I'm not really concerned about inviting other people into that because it's really just about me. It's called self-absorption. The other reason why hospitality might not be embraced by the people in the religious world is that maybe they're just actually don't see themselves as needing grace. Maybe you have never actually, or maybe you lost sight of this and you forgot about it. The sight, the forgot, we forget that we were actually currently, we were and we still are that sheep that goes astray and that God finds joy in throwing us over his shoulders. But when we lose sight of the fact that we are that sheep that goes off, we're not really, we, we actually get self-righteous. We don't see ourselves as being the coin that's lost and yet valuable. So we view ourselves as part of the in-group, like the second prodigal son, the older one, who's self-righteous. And what happens is, is self-righteousness, if we look at this story, but also our own lives, it snowballs. Self-absorption and self-righteousness, they both snowball. Self-righteousness snowballs in that I actually begin to think that I'm entitled to certain things because of what I've been doing. So I've been doing all the right things, God. Why, why wouldn't I get this or get that? It's a self-entitlement. It's actually self-righteousness. And at its worst, it, it snowballs in a very awkward direction, and we end up following the Pharisees. And here's how this kind of works. We can actually get so self-righteous to the point where we think that everyone that doesn't believe what we believe is actually at least a potential enemy. It can get worse, and we actually think that all the outsiders are out to get us. And we're being attacked constantly. And what this does is, is self-righteousness then becomes elitism. 
And now I start to actually believe that I have to separate from everything to become faithful. And hospitality is thrown out the door, and yet it's spiritualized. That's how you get to where the Pharisees are. And what what ends up happening is, and this just needs to be called out in all of our lives, both self-absorption and self-righteousness call for repentance. Both mindsets need transformation and the love of God to penetrate deeper than it is. But what needs needs to happen is if self-righteousness is part of our everyday life and separatism and elitism is a part of our thinking, what needs to happen is, is we have to call it out and say, I'm not actually following the hospitable ways of Jesus. I'm actually a follower of the Pharisees. And we need to name it, call it. I've fallen into the same trap. And now I'm condemning not Jesus, but I'm condemning his people for engaging. And maybe he hasn't gone that far yet, but the fear is real. Now, there's wisdom to be found in all this, but hospitality is one of the things that our elders have said, we believe as we look into Scripture, this is an end for the church, continuing to extend relationship to people outside of the Christian social circle. That's a way of Jesus. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you wouldn't claim to be a Christian, that's why we welcome you here. That's why. You're welcome to be in whatever process or season of life you're in or season of faith, or phase of faith, whatever it is, this is a place for you. Because that is the way of Jesus. Share a meal with us. Sharing a meal like Jesus is, is the way that we can share ourselves with you. It's extending relationship. Uh, But maybe as a Christian, maybe you're actually potentially at a point where, especially in a church our size here, you're actually losing touch with non-Christian friends. Like you don't have friends that are outside of the social religious circle. So you have some process. And let me just walk you kind of through a process of which you can protect yourself from either falling into that trap or maybe getting out of it, that mindset. The first one is through experience. I'll just put it up here. Uh, Or exposure. And what I mean by this is that Perhaps you have lost exposure to actual relationship with people that don't believe what you believe. And so what I would encourage you to do is to find somebody in our community here that has those relationships and join in to be exposed to what those normal human relationships look like. And you can get a practical picture of what hospitality biblically actually looks like. The the second thing that you may do is through experience. That in either of these, you don't need to necessarily connect with someone else. You can just look up and see people, but experience. The truth is, is that maybe you just need to engage in some service activity that's engaging with the community just so you can experience the beauty of being around people that Jesus was never offended by. It's amazing how offended we get around people or what they're saying or what they're doing. And yet Jesus around prostitutes, sinners, tax, he was never offended. He was extending relationship as the means of extending God's love. 
And so maybe there's a service thing that we can put together, be a part of, and do, that you actually experience that relationship at some level. The third stage is when it becomes actually endemic in your life. And in endemic, what all I mean by that is that hospitality becomes the natural characteristic for your way of life. It's just what you do. And yet it's a process. But as we look into Scripture, it's clearly what Jesus did. It was his way of life. Extending relationship constantly outside. Now, as a church, we recognize that we do this individually with our neighbors. Like, you might have a screwdriver, but why not go ask to borrow one? if you don't know the next-door neighbor. Why not just ask him or her to borrow one? Um, extending relationship through neighbors or maybe your children's, uh, their, uh, the, the parents of your children's friends or whatever. Those are natural kind of connecting points through sports or school or whatever it is. There's natural connecting points. But one of the ways that collectively, and just one, one of the ways we've done this is try to get involved in this the core of a community through schools, for instance, is that the, the core of any given community is going to show up in a local school. So the, the socioeconomic diversity will show up in a local public school. The ethnic diversity will show up in a local public school, not necessarily a private school. And I'm not talking about regardless of how you educate your own children, all the local schools are is a, may, a means for you to be exposed and to experience hospitality a practical way of just engaging with people. And so my, my challenge to us this week is, is would we look at hospitality as the ways of Jesus? Would we see that and then say we're actually going to follow Jesus? And then to collectively in our communities maybe even think about how we might be able to do that more so as a way of life, and maybe there's a process. And maybe in the community, we got people all over the map. That's going to be true. So how do we help each other and embrace hospitality as our way of life? Um, and here's why. Again, we look at Jesus, and it's good to say, well, the Bible says so. But if you think a little larger, if God is good and he is loving, and he's always been extending relationship. And we are his image bearers, then we ought to also extend relationship. It's hard to s- sometimes to think about this, but we actually are God's chosen means of hospitality in this world. That's who you are. And then we have to be who we are. It's an identity question. So, stories have a point. Now, let me pray for us as uh, Kale comes back up and leads us, and uh, the communion tables are open. If this is your your church, then you can maybe give in the boxes there. But let me pray for us, because we're going to come to the tables as people who have embraced and accepted God's invitation into relationship. Somehow, some way, somebody was hospitable towards us, and as we understand that love, now it's going to move us. It's going to move us out. And so as you take the elements, the cup and the, and the, the bread, would you, would you recognize that now you are not just a recipient of that hospitality, but you are a means of that hospitality as well? Let me pray.
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so grateful for your goodness and for your love, for you inviting us into relationship. Jesus, thank you for perfectly modeling the selfless love of God. We take these elements in remembrance of you and your selflessness. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to guide and direct us into the ways of Jesus, into your ways of extending relationship and hospitality. We sing to you now, Father, in the name of Jesus. We remember you, Jesus, through taking these elements. And Holy Spirit, we trust you to guide and direct us as your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.